Let's pray together. Our Father, we desire for that to be the purpose of our gathering this morning, to just adore and magnify the name of the Lord. Um, So we ask, Father, that you might help us to do that. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word and to embrace it. And, Lord, may it strengthen our resolve to live a life that pleases you in every way. So we ask, Father, that you might strengthen us in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Savior, I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So you left last Sunday, and you resolved, Dave's, uh, Pastor Dave's prayer group resolved to pray the prayers of Paul. You resolved to live your life bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God, and, and um, summoning the strength, depending on the strength of God for your endurance against things that come your way and, and uh, people that are frustrating and all of that. And, and you resolve that you would joyfully give thanks in everything. And then life showed up. Throughout this week, a bad phone call, a difficult conversation, possibilities that you learned something about your health or something that was discouraging or whatever and suddenly your emotions and your feelings tanked your faith quite honestly that's really the struggle of the Christian life is the battle with our feelings the battle with our emotions we live in a world frankly that has basically deified emotions The lawmakers of our land are entrenching laws based on emotions and feelings rather than truth. So we're surrounded with that all around us. But we fight our own feelings. And fear eats feelings for lunch. And if we're not careful, our faith takes a serious backseat. Now we can't be certain as to why Paul wrote in the particular place he wrote the text of today, which is 1 Colossians 15 to 20, because clearly it's an insertion into his, the flow of his letter. It's possible that he placed it there because he started to talk about the, the glories of salvation through Jesus Christ, and they said, wait a minute, I better, I better tell the Colossians what I know about Christ and how great he is. It's possible that that's why it was inserted there. It's also possible that as he was challenging them with their need to, to be strong in the Lord and to, to stave off the, the frustrations and troubles around them, that, that he thought, this is the right time for me to remind them to to look to who Jesus is. The the only way we can combat our feelings and our emotions is to make sure that we know what we believe and that we go to what we believe and we camp where we believe and we allow it to shape our lives. So with your Bibles open, let's let's dive into this text this morning of 1 Corinthians 15 to 20. Now, to get a a feel for the, the audience that... Paul's writing to the Colossians, the people of Colossae. The the religious landscape around them was structured in such a way that there were uh, old line Jewish Jewish congregations, Jewish uh, worshippers, and there was pagan Roman citizens. 
the Jewish, the Judish, Jewish uh, uh, system, of course, had long ago removed most of the last vestiges of anything that was real about God. And the Roman pagans world was a polytheistic world of multiple gods. How many studied Greek mythology in high school or college? Anybody? A few of you. Well, when I was in high school, we, I don't know what it was, we all had to study Greek mythology and, and the varieties of gods they had. I mean, all I knew about was Hercules from the cartoon, but, but I knew there was more than that. But they had, they had a multiple of gods. So, so the, this Coloss, the new Colossian believers were entrenched in a religious milieu that was in opposition to everything about the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was incumbent upon the Apostle Paul, it would seem, to paint this glorious picture, or I guess better put, to quill this glorious picture of who Christ is. And I commend it to you in, in the emotional world you and I live in, the emotional days that you live in, I commend this text to you to go to very often and just remind yourself. You're, you're not going to probably learn anything new this morning. You're going to be reminded of what you believe and in whom you believe. And if Jesus is who Paul portrays him to be here, then who can harm us if Jesus is what Paul says he is here, then what can take us down? What can take away our faith? So join with me in this, this beautiful portrayal of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I suspect that, and scholars suspect, that the Apostle Paul drew this text from an Old Testament scripture in Psalm 89, verse 27. In the context of that psalm, God is, is declaring David his firstborn, King David his firstborn, of, his, of the everlasting kingdom that he was promised. I, I, I sense here that Paul is structuring this with, in two cases he talks about firstborn, uh, and firstborn, which is the structure of his picture here. And, and I suspect that Paul is drawing from this text that, that this is the prophetic culmination of what the psalmist was writing when he talked about the firstborn. I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Paul says the reference is to Jesus Christ. Echoes of the Old Testament description here. The center of attention of God's intentions is Jesus Christ. The center of attention for the fledgling church of Colossae is that Jesus would be supreme over all. That Jesus would be the center of their focus, the center of their lives. That he would be the center and focus of our lives. And so he, against the backdrop of the culture that they lived in, comes out robustly saying he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Do you know who this Jesus is? He's the firstborn of all creation. I need to pause there so that we understand 
when we think firstborn, we think English word firstborn, we think, well, yeah, that, my, my firstborn kid, I know who that is. And that's who I think of as the firstborn, the firstborn person in our family. That's not what this firstborn concept is here in, this, in the theology of this. This is more a title, more about a rank, the first in line, the, the first in place, the, the first in the setting. So Jesus Christ, by the way, I, I should say when we launch out of verse 15 and it says he is, who is the he is that we're talking about here, just so we don't lose anybody. He's talking uh, antecedently to the, or, or, or pre, uh, the pre-statement of this is that he is the son he loves, the, in verse um, 13, the, the son of the father's love, the son. So it's Jesus Christ he's talking about here. And he is declaring him to be the firstborn of all creation, title, rank, the, the one at the place of, of creation. Now this was a stunning statement to the Jews, for sure, who saw Jesus as simply a teacher, simply a man who was crucified and absolutely not possible that he would be at creation. And um, Jesus himself in a discussion with Pharisees, a, a, um, a battle of wits which they came um, unarmed uh, for, Jesus said to them, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Remember what their response to him was? Wait a second, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world are you before Abraham? Jesus at that moment could have said to them, before Abraham, that's nothing. I, I was here before all of creation. That that's what Paul is saying here. Jesus was, was before all of creation, the, the firstborn of all creation. Paul connects these Old Testament scriptures and puts to the skeptical Jews around who this God was, who this, who this Savior was. And, and then he, he unfolds four descriptions out of that glorious statement of being the firstborn. And he says he is the image of the invisible God. Not an image, the image, the one and only image of the invisible God. Now you and I are made in the image of God. We are an image of God, in, but we are not the image of God. There is only one who is the image of God, and he is the, the image of the invisible God. When Paul uh, was in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he, it records there that he was wandering around in the agora or the marketplace, and he noticed all of the various gods that they had erected statues to. And he said, I perceive that you are a very religious people because I see all of these gods that you have. But in the midst of it, they had one that was a memorial to the unknown God. And Paul says, but I want to talk to you about the unknown God. And this is who Paul is referring to here when he says he's the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the God they said was unknown. And Jesus Christ is the physical disclosure of the invisible God. That's what he states here. God put on flesh and we get Jesus. As we read through the scriptures, what 
Jesus said, God said. What Jesus thought, God thought. What Jesus did, God did. What God did, Jesus did. What God thought, Jesus thought. What, uh, uh, and, so, and so on and so forth. Because we live in a, in a day and age when people are questioning the, the nature of Jesus Christ. Questioning uh, the, the scope of Jesus and what he said. And, and many are, are stating things like, well... I'm prepared to live my life on the basis of the exact words that Jesus said, but the rest of the Bible, not so much. And, and perhaps some of you brought a Bible today that has red letter, uh, red letter version, which is the, the words that Jesus spoke when he was among us on this earth. Paul is stating here, no, you're missing the point. Jesus didn't just say the red letter words. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Whatever God has said, the Son has said. And so, when Paul could write to Timothy and say, all scripture is God-breathed, then for us and for those who might be struggling with what should I believe or what, what parts of the Bible should I believe, uh, the Bible itself, the writers of the Bible, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit states, all scripture is what you need to believe. This is all God-breathed. So here you have the Gentile makers of images, idols, exchanging the glory of God for corruptible likenesses, which Paul wrote to the Romans and said is anathema to God. In this case... Jesus is the only image of God, the only image of the true God. That's why we've entitled this series, Christ, God, Visible, right from this particular text. The invisible God became visible in Christ. When Jesus was telling his disciples, John 14 near the end of his time on earth, that he was about to, to go away. And he said to them, you know, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you so that where I am there, you may be also. And Philip, I think wishing he hadn't have said this, said, well, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, I have been with you so long and you don't realize that to see me is to see the Father. Paul picks up on this. says he is the image of the invisible God. I was shocked in doing research for this particular sermon to um, find an article, uh, a research article by Ligonier Ministries um, published by Lifeway asking the question among evangelicals and here's the question all right it was a it was a statement made and and then the response from the from the uh um, in the survey the response was to be agree or disagree so here's the statement and i want you to think in your mind agree or disagree all right jesus was a great teacher but not god agree or disagree Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 
I'm not going to take a, a hand poll here to see what we get out of this because the result of this survey was shocking to me. Okay, this survey was taken among evangelical Christians. Okay, that's us. That's the best that the world has in terms of Christianity is evangelical Christians. 43% agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% of people who identify as evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. Now, I, I, you know, there's a reason why I didn't ask you to put your hands up, because I just couldn't take it. If, if there was anybody in here who, at West Highland Baptist Church, uh, other than someone who is lost, and, and we're glad you're here, because today you're going to encounter the fact that Jesus Christ is the living God. And, and so, it's, it's very unnerving, and it explains in a, to a great deal the, the problem we have with reaching lost people today is the people who claim to know Jesus don't know Jesus. Now, I don't know what kind of teaching they're getting, but he is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus wasn't only there at creation, but listen, as it goes on in the text, for by him, verse 16, all things were created. He wasn't only there as some sort of observer. The Son of God is the creator. The Son of God is the creator of everything, visible and invisible. When it talks here about thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, we're going to find out later in the, in the text that he's talking about the, the unseen world of angels and demons. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the creator of everything. Everything was made, the, the text in NIV says, for by him, but I think it's better translated in him because we have a by him at the end of the verse. In him all things were created. He is the source of all things. All things emanated from Christ, from nothing, as the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11.3. The Son of God created out of nothing because He is the source of everything. In Him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, by Him and for Him. Everything that exists is for the purpose of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. This removes the possibility of evolutionary theory or hypothesis. The biblical description is that everything that you see, everything that is, is sourced in the creative work of the Son of God. I'm an unapologetic, six-day literal creationist. Because I believe the scriptures teach that. From nothing. And as a result of that, what the Son of God has created by him and for him, everything has a purpose and has an intention and design the way it was created. 
And so we as God's people are vice regents of the creator God to take care of his creation. It's our responsibility. So we do care about some of the green things around us. Some of the green strategies that are around us. We do agree with that. We shouldn't be polluters of God's great creation. But it doesn't stop there. We are also caretakers and stewards of God's perfect design in creation so that there's no room for us to negotiate away the way God has made his creation. So we are not those who can be sympathetic to gender rearrangements in our culture. We, we, are, we are not able to, to, to accept anything but a binary creation. That man was made in the image of God. In the image of God, he was made male and female. It's connected to the design and image with which he, in him, by him, for him, delivered it. And, and our, our, our responsibility is to know him and to know this and to know what we believe and to live what we believe and to champion what we believe in this world that we might honor and represent and glorify our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. That we might truly be an image of Christ in this world. So creation is the handiwork of Jesus the Christ and is entirely subject to him. So nothing poses a threat to you and I. Because everything belongs to Christ. Not only that. Not only was he there and was he before in the beginning as creator. But. He was there eternally. He is before all things. He's the eternal God, before all things. In case the firstborn terminology is somehow ambiguous, Paul lays it out for us, just, just so you can know for sure what I'm talking about. He wasn't created. He wasn't just there as a spectator. He was there before anything was there. He is the second person of the triune God, and therefore he is eternal, first cause of all things. But not only that, he's the sustainer of all things. He, in him, all things hold together at the end of verse 17. He keeps creation together. Listen, let, let me hear this. As much as we are stewards of God's great creation, we are not Required to save the cosmos. Jesus can take care of it. Thank you very much. We are stewards to live righteously and do righteous things. But we're not required to save the planet. The planet's not at the mercy of us. The sustainer of all things is the Lord Jesus Christ. He holds it all together. 
He keeps everything from coming unglued, including you and your world around you. Our Christology, or our study of Christ, does not present a deistic Jesus, a deistic Christ, whereby he created and then washed his hands, walked away, and said, hey, I hope it all works out for you. You're going to have to struggle on your own to make this thing work out, and you're going to have to save the planet all by yourself because I'm, I'm out of here. That's not the Christ that we have portrayed here. God did not walk away, leave us to try and survive and figure it out. One of the old writers back in 1898, H.G. Moore, writes this. He controls the cosmos and keeps it from becoming chaos. That, that, I can sleep at night. I go to sleep at night not worried about the planet. You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know about all of you because the, the commercials and the, the marketplace, they're trying to scare the daylights out of us. I don't go to bed scared. And that's the point, that fears and emotions and feelings are all bundled together and seek to sink our faith. Our faith is found here in what we know to be true of Christ, who he really is. He doesn't just hold some sort of mess together, by the way, as Garland writes in his commentary. Rather, Jesus is the rationale, rhyme, and reason, the operating system behind all operating systems. The cosmos is not self-sufficient. If the Son of God took his finger off of creation, it would come unglued. If you and I for a moment knew how quickly our world was spinning at this moment and how quickly it was moving orbiting the sun it would unnerve you <laughs> the speed with which we're spinning like it feels very still right now doesn't it <laughs> the speed with which we are spinning is unbelievable and not only are we spinning but we're moving in an elliptic around the sun we're spinning and moving and yet our oceans stay fixed in their place. Now, you know, I challenge any of you, go home, fill up a bowl of water, and start running around your house. That water is going all over the place. Why isn't the water going all over the place? We're spinning like crazy. Because the Son of God holds it all together. Even those who radically reject him are sustained by him. The glory and grace of God is amazing. Every single person on this planet who draws the next breath is drawing it because of the gracious kindness of Jesus Christ who sustains them. They don't want him, but they couldn't survive without him. No one, no creature is self-sufficient outside of the help of the creator. He is the sufficient one. Well, the opposite extreme. So, so what we have here, the first part of this, and, and the second part will go quicker. Um, but the first part of this is, is a description of, of the firstborn of creation. The firstborn of life. The realm of life belongs to the Son of God. 
And then Paul says, but he is also the firstborn from among the dead. That's the total opposite realm. So supreme is the Son of God, so magnificent is the Son of God, that he dominates every realm that is possible. He dominates the realm of the living, and he dominates the realm of death. Now stay with me here, because we have this incredible condescension of, of the Lord of glory coming to live among us, coming to live among a dying creature, a dying creation. Dying because of sin. Dying because of rejecting the creator of life. He comes to us. And, and as, as this letter is being written, I, I, you can almost hear people saying, Paul, are you talking about the Jesus that was in Jerusalem and was crucified and they claimed that he rose again in the, in the whole realm of death and tombs and the paranoia around death and the enemy called death and all of that. Is that who you're talking about? This is the one. Yeah, that's, this, this is who I'm talking about. The supreme creator of all is the one who was crucified and resurrected Savior. Now what's this all about? Well, again, the word firstborn here is important in this that every time the firstborn in the singular appears in the new testament it is referencing jesus christ and it is referencing his supremacy his priority and his rank in romans 8 29 1 corinthians 15 20 acts 26 23 revelation 1 5 and here it's referring to Jesus Christ, and particularly his supremacy. And so Paul introduces that he is the supreme one over all, including the realm of death. And then he outlines the extent of this and what this looks like. And he says, first of all, he's the head of the church. By drinking deeply of the consequences of sin on our behalf, and taking the death that we should have died, the sin that wasn't his own, but was our sin. Jesus is able to rescue out of creation a new creation called the church. That's what we are. We are Christ's new creation, created in Christ Jesus. And this is what has happened. So his resurrection was to benefit and bestow blessings upon a people he would call to his own name. And so he is the head of the church. Only through connection to the head is eternal life and growth possible. It is not possible to have eternal life or to grow in our likeness of Christ unless we are connected to Christ through our faith in what he has done for us. This is very important because any one of us can get up and leave this morning and we'll still have a church connected to the head. But if Jesus were to leave, we are totally disconnected. 
We have no connection with one another. So the head of the church is critically important. And, and um, I'm going to say something that's going to sound controversial at first, but, but don't get up and leave until you hear all of it. Okay? We exist not to reach the lost. We exist, we do not exist to meet needs. We do not exist to take over our country. We do not exist to, to protect our particular denomination and stripe. We do not exist to protect our brand here on Garth Street at West Highland Baptist Church. We do not exist to be sensitive to the culture around us. We exist to serve the head of the church. We, exert, we exist to bring glory to Christ. So the front of the line, the proto-tokus, the firstborn, the front of the line, the head of the church, is the reason we, we exist to serve the head of the church. Now, Jesus commissions us to meet the needs of the, the, those who have needs, to, to go reach the lost, to, 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 uh, to serve him in a variety of ways. To, to seek to reach your neighbor and be kind and compassionate to them. All of those things Jesus, the head of the church, commissions us to do. But make no mistake about it. Our first order of responsibility is to honor and serve the head of the church, whatever he calls us to do. Well, why do I even say that? Because it is critical for us to never ever grab hold of a facet of who we are and miss the point. We don't exist to save West Highland Baptist Church. We exist to serve Christ. And if Christ told this congregation, move from here to there, we wouldn't in a mo hesitate for a moment and say, no, wait a minute, we exist to take care of our brand right here on Garth Street. No, that's not it. We exist to serve Christ and to bring glory to him because he is the head of the church. So our focus is Christ. He is the, 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 uh, the apex of, of what we do. And not only is he the head of the church, but in being firstborn from among the dead, the purpose is that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now what does this mean? There was, although the Son of God is the rightful Lord of creation and Lord of all, there was one obstacle untamed in our world. And that is the systematic death of his creation. The systematic death of what he had created to have life. There was one realm, one untamed obstacle, and that is death. It is the final, it is the la our, our last enemy. It is our enemy. Death is, is, death is our enemy. You sitting here have experienced it in your families with close people to you. You recognize the abject horror of death and how awful it is and how, how wrong it seems 
Because we were made to live. We were created to live, not to die. And so it, it feels so foreign and so wrong. And it was the one untamed obstacle to life that was yet occurring. The Son of God, the Lord of glory, the author of life, came to dominate even death for us and tame the last untamed obstacle in his creation. Even all of creation itself, Paul writes to the Romans, is waiting in anticipation for the redemption of the sons of God that we might be liberated unto life. J.I. Packer, or not J.I. Packer, but C.S. Lewis, not quite the theologian that J.I. Packer is, said this part of what he said, only someone divinely supreme can forgive sins and only someone human can die, fully God, fully man, the mystery of the indwelling spirit. And in some way, Lewis states, it's the theme in a very minor key, but in some way it teaches us how we are flesh and indwelt by the spirit of God. And so, because of what Jesus has done and conquered death, he is categorically supreme over everything. The realm of life and the realm of death. Death is no longer our enemy. It is our transport into the very presence of the living God for all eternity. It, we go from life to life because of what Christ has done for us. It says here, as he mounts up more and more, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. In Christ, the full essence of God is able to be seen. I wrote in the margin of my, my Bible in the study of this, this whole, um, com this whole fullness word is the complete and totality of God. God's essence is in Christ. There is no extra God essence beyond him. In other words, there isn't Christ and then, oh, there's some more God stuff out there. There is no more God stuff outside of Christ. The fullness of God dwells in everyone. So for those who say, I'm all about God, but I'm not about Christ, I'm sorry, you're not all about God. You can't be about God. For, for those religions that say, no, we have a God, we believe in God, but Christ isn't, isn't involved, it, it's, you, aren't, you aren't involved with the real God because all of the essence of the one and only true and real God is in Christ Jesus. The fullness of God dwells in him. The purpose of creation is to reflect that. And Literally, God has chosen to completely and permanently dwell in Christ. He formerly dwell, was dwelling in his earthly habitation in the temple. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus, read John 1, Jesus is the temple. Christ is the place where God's fullness is. To go to Christ is to go to God. We may reflect the glory of Christ, but Christ is 
is the glory of God. And in the, in the, in the, in the essence of understanding this, let me just make a, an important statement here because a question that rises here in terms of, of the supremacy of Christ and the fullness of God in the Son of God and all of that and the maker of heaven and earth and, and all that is wrapped up in who the Son of God is, the question often surfaces, why did the Son of God make the world the way he did? Why, why did he make the world in such a way that it was possible to fall? In, 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 why, why would the Son of God make Satan knowing full well what Satan was going to do? If, if the Son of God is supreme and, and, and the ultimate over all of life and creator of all things, why? It would, wouldn't it have been so much better for us if he had have done something different? The purpose in God's revelation of himself in Christ is a, is a reminder or, a, or a, a key to us understanding who God is. The intention of God in creation was to be glorified by his creation by revealing who he is. So that we know God, we worship him. But his intention was to reveal everything about himself. The fullness of who God is. Which also includes the wrath of God. The grace of God. The mercy of God. The compassion of God. The ability of God to forgive sins. The ability of God to conquer death. All of that the revelation of God. In all of that, the world that was created is created the way it is that he might be able to reveal the fullness of who he is. And so we have in Christ the revelation of the fullness of God. And he is the reconciler of all things. Not a universal state, universalist statement. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. We're going to look at reconciliation next week a little a bit more in depth. But reconciliation is simply making peace. The ultimate promise of Jesus and our future is to reconcile all of creation to himself. Whether voluntarily now as you bow the knee to him in salvation or forcefully then as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the peace that he will make is the peace that he's made through the cross of Jesus Christ to those who receive him. And the world will be at peace when Christ finally puts away evil forever and ever. Those who forcefully kneel but didn't voluntarily kneel will be put away forever away from him. 
and he will reconcile the world to himself. So the church is his sacrificial work through the blood of his cross. So when we recognize the supremacy and sufficiency and awesomeness of Jesus Christ, we realize that all of the strange things that go on around us in the name of religion are really extraneous. All of the trinkets and the bells and the whistles and the gowns and all the special things that you, you, as you watch all of the machinations of human beings trying to somehow please God in worship. And all of the sideshows of crazy church are patently unnecessary and mostly distracting. Christ alone is God's plan for us. Where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst. No bells and whistles and trinkets and sideshows. In the poorest of poor that have nothing, there is the majesty and sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus Christ in a gathering of those who love him. Love, there's really no way to interpret life or meaning or purpose if you bypass Christ. God in Christ places his glory on display through reconciling and redeeming a, a, a fallen creation so that all of creation itself can worship and enjoy and glorify him forever. That's who we are. And there's no other meaning to life. So when your feelings and your emotions threaten to swamp your faith. Turn your eyes toward Jesus. It would be a, a travesty to assume that everyone here this morning knows the Lord Jesus Christ. I've tried to present accurately what the Word of God portrays as Christ the Lord and Savior. And I have to ask if whether or not you have received peace with God through Jesus Christ. Because today you could. He offers his peace to you through Christ who died, who put your sins on the cross. So that he could place his righteousness in your life. And the requirement of you is to simply believe that he's done it for you. Repent of your sins and invite him to be your savior and your Lord. John the Apostle at the front end of his letter, his gospel, is surely, surely perplexed when he writes this, he, meaning Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Those who believe, even to those who believe in his name, those born of God. So if you know him, rejoice in him, praise him, study him, know him, read about him. 
If you don't know him, today is the day of salvation. Come to him today. Father, thank you so much for your word, for this most excellent portrayal of Christ penned in human language because our minds are incapable of hosting the supremacy and awesomeness of the Son of God in all of his fullness. And someday we will be able to. But Lord, in the meantime, you have, by the direction of your Holy Spirit, given us enough to praise you and worship you and, and be amazed at who you are. And so I pray, Lord, that the, the tenor of this morning and our time with you and our time following in the days to come will be rejoicing in the glories of Jesus Christ, I pray in his name. Amen. As a dismissal this morning, I want to point to the instruction of Psalm 73 because I think it is so germane to what we were talking about this morning and so reflective of our lives so often. It's familiar to you. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. And then the psalmist says this, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Beloved, the reality of life will pound against your heart and will seek to swamp your faith. And the only way you can hold on is to turn and have a fresh gaze of your Lord and Savior, what you believe about him and what is true about him Tell I gazed into his sanctuary. Christ is the sanctuary of God. Drink deeply of him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Father, we love you and praise you and thank you today that you rescue our hearts from falling, that you might present us one day perfect in the presence of God forever. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.